0: visit our website at fbcloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks and enjoy the latest from FBC. This is such a cool day. Uh, Here and out from underneath the health restrictions and this morning I was a little bit more concerned about being ready for this morning and, and so as I was getting dressed I said to Fran, how do I look? And I don't usually ask that and and obviously, right? Like, I mean, and so she she uh, she stood back and she gave me sort of a, a glance up and down and so on, and, and and then finally she said, "I think I prefer you with the mask." <laughs> so I hope your day is going better. I was so prepared to be excited and have a great day. Anyways, we're we're gonna have a great a great day this morning, I trust. Even already, just again, just singing and listening to you sing has been so awesome. Um, it is good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. So uh, we are starting a series. Well, actually, we're not really starting a series, but we're sort of, it's been interesting. We did a, a series on prayer called Ready, Set, Go in, back in June, and then Gord last week sort of transitioned us into this new series that we're calling Prayers of Biblical Proportion. Last week, as he talked about the incense of our prayers, that, that aroma, that pleasant aroma going up to God as we pray amidst all the rest of the junk that comes up out of this world for him to have to observe and experience and so on. And so if you didn't catch that message, then by all means go back and and check that out because that just sort of, again, sets us in the right perspective and mood as we come to this series. But this morning, we're going to be starting looking at some prayers specifically that we find elsewhere in Scripture. And this is kind of interesting um, you know, in that we talk about prayer generally speaking, sometimes, and, and oftentimes when we get to prayer, then we get to the Lord's Prayer, right? We take a look at that and we try and mind that, and those things are all good, all worthwhile, all very valuable. But this series is going to be looking at some of the other prayers that we find in various other places throughout Scripture, and, and honestly, I've been intrigued by this ever since we decided to do it. Because it's something that I haven't done before, where we go to prayers throughout Scripture and we just look at those prayers and try and see what we can learn as we watch those prayers being prayed. So, that's what we're going to do this morning. And already I have been appreciating this as I've been preparing for the different messages coming up that I'm handling in this in this series. And so, uh, I just hope that this morning that I'm going to be able to uh, get you as enthused about this as, as I have been already. So, This morning, we're going to start off with Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. But before we get going, would you just bow with me in prayer as we commit this time to Him? Father, this morning, again, we stop and we say thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to come together. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship once again without restrictions. And Lord, this morning, as we come together, I pray that you would just impress upon us the privilege that we have and also that you would take this time now, even above and beyond that, that we would now invest this time, that we would lean into it in such a way that we would be different on account of it, that we wouldn't just be here, that we wouldn't just be celebrating the freedoms that we have from out from underneath the health restrictions and so on, but that we would come now and that we would lean into you, that we would um, open ourselves up so that you could speak to us, so that you could grow us, that you could make us into your people even more than when we arrived. And so to that end, again, I commit this time and I pray all of these things in Christ's name and for his sake alone. Amen. All right, if you'd take your Bibles and turn with me, we're going to be looking at Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. So Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. If you don't bring your Bible, that's all right. There'll be on the screens you can follow along there. So let's dig in. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Keep watch with me here means more than just sort of Look around. It means actually to spend this time and it lends itself to the understanding of joining him in prayer. Going a little fur farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you, men, keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This morning there are seven things that I want to highlight from Christ's prayers in Gethsemane. First of all, we want to look at Jesus' priority of prayer. Then we want to look at his perturbation in prayer. His posture in prayer. We'll look at the paternal address of his prayer. We'll look at his petition. We'll consider his persistency. And then finally, we're going to look at his perspective. Now, I've been so excited about this morning and having you all back here with me that I wanted to have a real humdinger of a message, sort of commensurate with the the circumstances this morning, if you will. And we all know, right, that the best pastors and the best sermons are comprised of a lot of alliteration. They use it liberally, right? They, They want to instruct. They want to intrigue. They want to inspire, and we can't forget impress. So I figured, all righty, I know the drill, seven. Seven aspirated Ps. Priority, perturbation. Anyways, all right. So th- I hope that by the end of this, you're going to say, that was a humdinger, Doug. That was a humdinger. All right, let's start off. Seriously, per- with Christ's priority of prayer. Now, stop and think about with me just the scenario that has been the experience of Jesus in the last moments leading up to him in Gethsemane. He's been with the the disciples for the last time before he goes to the cross. He's washed their feet, and he's been speaking into their lives. He's predicted Judas's betrayal and betrayal Judas has taken off to go and find the authorities now. He's looked at Peter and told Peter that in short order, Peter's going to deny him three times. As he's coming to this point, he's remembering Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 13 verse 7. And the fact that it's going to be proven true shortly. That that prophecy is going to be fulfilled because the shepherd is going to be struck in short order. And his sheep are going to be scattered. And so, as he considers what he's just been through, as he considers the fact that he is now on his way to the the cross, that coming up is going to be a couple of kangaroo courts, followed by some torture, followed by his execution. He determines that what the best course of action now to do is to go and pray amidst everything that has just happened, In advance of what he knows is about to happen, what does he do? He determines to go and pray. He takes the disciples, and they head across the Kidron Valley to Gethsemane to pray. Not not to gossip about Judas. not Not to berate Peter. Not to give them one more crash course and what they need to know because he's going to be gone shortly. Not to try and pump them up. Not even to hatch an escape plan. But rather, to pray. And what's more, is that he encourages his disciples to join with him in that, particularly Peter, James, and John. Now, I would submit to you right off the hop that we are really wise to see ourselves in Peter, James, and John here at this point. As we consider this story, as we listen to what's going on, as we are about to see these events unfold, we should think of ourselves in Peter, James, and John's shoes. Now it's true, Peter, James, and John were understood to be Jesus' favorite disciples. They were particularly close to Jesus. But as Jesus calls them to pray, the disciples, and, and specifically Peter, James, and John to pray, I think that he has something more in mind than just taking them a little bit further on with him because they're so close. You'll recall, back in verse 35, we saw Peter there, staking his claim, saying that he will never disown Jesus. Never. Not going to happen. And a little bit further back yet, back in chapter 20, James and John have pledged to Jesus that they are able, that they are willing and that they are able to drink of the cup that Christ is about to drink. And he says, you don't don't understand the cup that I'm about to drink, but they're in. They figure that they are up to the task. And so as Jesus says, hey boys, come, come a little bit further with me. Watch and pray with me now. Consider yourself as one of them. Because in short order, we're going to see something happen. In short order, after Christ has called them to pray, and they've stumbled in that, they've failed, they've fallen asleep, then we're going to see them stumble in a far bigger way. Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And James and John, the sons of thunder, are going to scramble, run, and hide, afraid of what's about to happen, what the authorities are about to do. You know, I don't know, but I really wonder at how direct that consequence is for Peter, James, and John as a result of them having missed Christ's priority and His invitation, His command, His instruction, His encouragement to us to pray. I have to ask myself the question, if, if they had invested a little bit more time, if they had seen the priority that Jesus was exhibiting and ex- giving them as an example right then as he was praying in front of them. And if they had participated in that, would the results have been the same for them? In a few short hours. Would it have changed something? This morning... As we consider Christ's priority of prayer, his invitation to us, his encouragement to us, we do well to take that to heart. Secondly, let's consider Jesus' perturbation. And first of all here, props to RT France for the word perturbation. I hadn't run into that before, but it's awesome. I'm trying to use it all the time now. Are you asking me, dear, about why I'm perturbation, what my perturbation is? My family's not going to appreciate it. The word means distress or anguish. Verse 38 says Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Clearly, Christ is in distress and he's experiencing significant anguish. And this morning, as we come to this, we need to be clear about what his perturbation is. What is causing this distress and anguish? We need to understand that it's not on account of how he is about to die. It's not on account of the fact that he is about to be crucified. I think sometimes we hear this about Jesus. Everybody talks about the fact that, you know, he died this horrible death. And we get caught and fixated on the physical. We're trying to grasp it and we're trying to understand it. What do they mean? Why is this so different? Why is this so so horrible for Jesus? Because other people have died by crucifixion. So it isn't that that is causing Jesus his distress, his anguish here as he comes to Gethsemane and prays. Rather, it's the fact that he is going to die the death of a sinner. Despite the fact that he is perfect and holy, never sinned once, he is going to be suffering the death that comes for sinners. Where God the Father turns his back on him and cannot look at the sin that he is about to shoulder. For you and for me. Not just his own. He didn't have any. Not just yours. Not just mine. But all of ours. That he is about to bear that. And he knows that in that. That God will forsake him. In that moment. As he takes that upon himself. And pays the penalty for our sin. In that Respect then. Christ's death is unique. He's the only one, the only one, that ever died having no sin. You and I would be justified in our death and in the consequences of that because we've sinned, but he hadn't. And having to pay that price then, and having to pay that penalty, he understands what that represents. That he is going to be separated from God the Father. The absolute worst thing possible. So this morning, as we see Christ pray, and as he sweats drops of blood, that's why. Not because he's going to be flagged. Not because he's going to be tortured. Not because he's going to die between two thieves on a cross. But because of the price that he is going to pay for you and for me. Thirdly, let's consider now Jesus' posture as he comes to prayer. Verse 39a says, Going a little farther. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed. As Jesus goes to pray, he falls with his face to the ground. And that's not to say this morning that the only place that you and I can pray is with our face in the ground. But sometimes I think maybe we should. Every once in a while, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing for us to get to that point where we recognize what we're doing in prayer and that we would be on our face in the ground before God praying. We have this such a flippant approach to prayer so, ta- so many times I find, at least I do, where I waltz into the presence of God, drop a few requests His way, get distracted start thinking about being out on my tractor, a Coca-Cola, or something like that. Maybe maybe if I got my nose down in the dirt every once in a while, that would help me to stay a little bit more focused. And probably even more specifically, if I was at that point where I was willing to get down in the dirt with my nose, then I would be in the right place where I would understand what I'm doing in prayer. This isn't to beat us up this morning. I'm just Baptist enough to think that, you know, when I come to church that I should hurt by the time I go home a little bit. And so I apologize. I'm not here trying to make you have a bad day. We can pray to God. We can pray to Him anywhere. And it doesn't have to be anguished. But as we see Christ here, as we see Him down in the dirt, praying, it can't help for me but to elevate the activity of prayer in my mind. That there is something of consequence about this. That would cause our Savior to get down on His face on the ground and pray. That there's a transaction that's taking place that has merit and substance and consequence. And that I should go hunting for that in my relationship with Him and with God. If there was ever a case for someone to be able to come to prayer with an attitude of entitlement, would have been Jesus, right? Darren mentioned that a couple of weeks ago as part of the panel with Bruce. He has every right to be entitled to come to God. Into his presence, make his requests known. But he comes so humbly. And we do well to follow his example. Fourth, let's look at Jesus' paternal address of his prayer. Verse 39. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father. Jesus comes and prays to his father. This is another thing that Darren mentioned when he was on, his, on the panel. He, said, he noted that Jesus wasn't coming to the boss at that point. I was a little bit concerned. I thought, man, is he going to preach my whole message? One of the few times, one of the few times that I'm ahead a little bit on my sermon prep, and then I'm watching Darren go, well, is he going to? Getting all my points here. Jesus comes and prays my father. Now, don't miss that. Jesus is praying to his dad. And we look at that and we say, well, that makes sense because Jesus is his dad. God the father. Jesus the son. Connection. But here's the thing. You and I have been adopted now into Christ's family in exactly the same way. Into God's We're His children now. He is our Father. So can I ask you just one simple question in this section this morning? Are you pursuing your relationship with God today in such a way as that you would understand Him and know Him and relate to Him as your Father? Or as we see this, does it seem distant to you? Does it seem somewhat removed, somewhat of an anomaly where you look at it and you would say, well, I I can't say that. I don't know that. God is my dad. I don't understand it in that respect. Well, I would say join the club. But don't stay there. Let's not stay there. This morning, as we see Christ pray to His Father, He's inspiring us to pray the same way, to know God the same way. That we would know Him as our Dad. That we would pursue Him in prayer on that level of relationship. He wants the same for each one of us today. Don't miss it. Point five. Jesus's petition. Verse 39c. He prays, "My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me." Now here Jesus comes to the Father, space in the ground. And we see him offer to God his sincere desire. His sincere desire that if it be possible, that this cup be taken from him. How does that relate to you and I today? Well, just one thing quickly. Some years ago, back when we had adult Sunday school, I was doing a series on prayer. And we were talking about prayer over the course of a few weeks. And every once in a while, I would get a note from Mr. Crockett after a a particular lesson or what have you. And one of the notes that he wrote to me said this. As you pray, let your heart be without words, but never your words without heart. I don't know who said it. I've actually looked for that before to try and find who said that. It was just a quote that he had found somewhere that he had come across, and it stuck with me ever since. Let your heart be without words, but never your words without heart. Again, as I look at my life, as I look at my prayer life, so oftentimes I go to God with words without heart. I show up, I've got a list of things that I need to pray about, and I'm rattling them off, going down the list. I've got on my, on my computer screen, my monitor in my office, I've got sticky notes of things that people have asked me to pray for. And they go all the way around my computer screen, because it seems like there's always something more to pray for. And I have to do that. I think I mentioned that before. I have to do that because I'm at that stage of life where I forget things. So I note them, and I put them down, and I have them there to remind me. But every once in a while, I have to stop myself and say, Doug, you're just, you're just, it's just the race around the monitor. You're just going through the motions here, dude. As we come to God, again, Jesus serves as our model here. Come with your sincere desires. Come with words full of your heart. Not just some sort of arbitrary list. Go to God with where you're at. Tell him what's on your mind. Ask him about the things that concern you. Never let your words be without heart. Number six, let's look at Jesus' persistency. Verse 44. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time. Three times in a few short hours since the Last Supper to the time where he's about to be betrayed. Jesus takes time to pray. Three times. The first time, we know, was for an hour. He came back to the disciples after an hour. Not sure exactly how much longer the other prayers were and how much time overall that he prayed. But the fact is, these weren't token prayers. Jesus took some time with God, with the Father, to pour out his heart and to consult and to beseech God for his intervention, for his participation with him in what was about to happen. I said it before, so oftentimes again, we throw up token prayers, even for the things that we're really concerned about, things that, that matter to us. And when and we, and we abscond ourselves, we say, well, I'm not very good at prayer. It doesn't come naturally to me. I wish I was better at prayer. And then we, on we go. Perhaps maybe having at least noted it, but not really ever having done something more to change it. To adjust ourselves. To discipline ourselves. There's a bad word. Jesus again comes along and he shows us that this opportunity, this avenue of prayer, this this currency, if you will, of prayer, is something to be reckoned with and invested in. Having considered everything that's just happened, understanding what's about to happen, he takes time to pray some significant prayers. He invests in prayer. That takes time. I don't think that there's any way to get around it. If I value prayer, if I understand what can be accomplished in prayer, if I want to understand what could be accomplished in prayer, We need to take some time in prayer. Lastly, this morning, Jesus' perspective. Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Kelsey told me today, dude, on time this morning. We've got kids' program happening back there. Point seven, as we bring this in for a landing this morning, let's consider Jesus' perspective As we come to this prayer in Gethsemane, as we see Jesus praying, drops of blood, sweating drops of blood, I think we oftentimes come away from this prayer confused. Confused, maybe even disappointed. Right? Because it doesn't quite compute for us so often. We see Christ's sincerity. We see his sincerity here. He's praying sincerely. We don't have to be convinced We'll accept that. He is sweating drops of blood over this. He is invested in this. He is sincere in his prayer to God, his desires. And somewhere in our vague recollection of Scripture, I would submit vague, vague, more vague than it should be for most of us, we, we remember something about, well, If we pray sincerely, then God will give us the desires of our heart. So if we're sincere about that, then God's going to bless us. He's going to give us those desires because we're sincere. It's the desire of my heart, Lord. And, And we build our own theology, don't we? You and I, at least I do, where I try and take my Scripture and I try and cobble that together, I try and construct that into formulas and situations and, and, and constructs where I can control God, where I can put Him in a box, where I can predict and, and predestine the outcome. So somehow, I want it to be that when I'm sincere, when I have a, a real desire, one that's honest and true, that if I come to God and pray it, well then somehow then He's gotta Deliver. And I think Jesus helps us to understand this better here. He Gives us the right perspective here. Verse 39c. Yet not as I will, but you, as you will, Jesus prays. Verse 42c. May your will be done, Jesus prays. And verse 44, So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. May your will be done. Jesus had offered a very sincere petition to God, that the cup would be removed if it was possible. But his perspective is this that it is always best for God's will to be done. The desire, the desire of Christ's heart is always that the Father's will be done. That's his perspective. I can take him my petitions this morning. And we've got some serious ones. We're praying for people with cancer. We want them to be healed. We've got people with accidents that have been in accidents, and we're praying for God to intervene with them. We've got relationship problems. We've got financial problems. There's sincere desires. There's sincere petitions. But our perspective this morning, church family, needs to be this. That God, your will be done. Because I know that you are good, and I know that you are great, and therefore I will submit what I understand to you, and I will trust you in your will. Facing facing the absolute worst circumstances that you could ever imagine, Jesus looks at God and says, Listen, this this is my perspective, this is how I see it, but nevertheless, your will be done. Your will be done. May your will be done. And I submit to that because I know that I can trust you. Jesus' desire, the desire of his heart was more that God's will be done than anything else. That was his perspective. It far surpassed the concerns he had facing him at the time. This morning... As we go back and as we try and correct our theology, as we try and remind ourselves of our proper theology, wherever you might be in this this morning. Psalm 37.4 says this, take delight in the Lord. Delight here doesn't mean just warm fuzzies. Delight means that you are satisfied in God, that you trust Him, that you are willing to submit yourself to Him, that you are completely ready to let His will be done because you know that that's best. Delight, take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. When we delight in Him, when we want His will, then He is more than willing to fulfill those things in our lives because He knows what's best. And he will not fail us in that. In fact, I would encourage you to go home and read all of Psalm 37. The whole psalm is about trusting in God. And that's what Jesus models for us this morning in Gethsemane. That we trust in God in his circumstances. Far worse than any that we'll ever face. He trusted God. And we do well to do the same.